All right. Hey, everybody. It's 6.55 p.m. on the East Coast. And we're hanging out on the... On this August 9th, really, really beautiful day, a productive day, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this, this evening's broadcast. It's going to be longer than last, one, last night's broadcast, though not a full two hours, because at 8.30 p.m. tonight, Eastern Time, we are going to be bouncing off of here and jumping into session two of our book club session, our book club uh convening of the book club for The Devil in the White City. It's going to be another good one, but uh, more than enough time to get a solid hour in with our guest of the evening, and that man's name is Mike Williams. And we're going to be talking about... I, I already know that we can bring Mike on for an entire series of discussions about a number of very compelling subjects... But tonight I wanted to bring him on for the very special Beatles conspiracy conversation. I don't know how much we're going to be able to do within an hour. I think we could be able to get all of the uh, the most important points out of the way. But, you know, this was one of those guests that I went out and I uh, we grabbed right around the time that the news came out in the Daily Mail and elsewhere about the second gun, the second bullet. That was found at the Dakota, at the scene of John Lennon's assassination, which of course lends itself to the idea that there was another person there. You start wondering, what is going on? Why two people? What's going on with this? What are the tie in? There's so much. But that really, that's the end of, that's the tip of the iceberg at the bottom, because that's toward the tail end of the, the Beatles, you know, that whole story. But when you think about what they've done, it all happened really in the public eye between 1964, especially in the United States, to 1970. It's a six-year journey that feels like it was a 30-year career. And that's what I always talk about with my friends. You know, it's just incredible what was done within six years. You think it went on for a couple of decades. What the hell's happening? And it's a Cinderella story as to how they even landed in the United States, the conditions under which they landed. And... Um, Hey, you know, I like their music. I was raised on it. And it's one of those things where you start peeking behind the curtain. You might find some dark reality, some dark history behind something that used to be so innocent. Does it take away the fact that you like the music? Do you just have to examine it objectively and separate the two like we do with so many classic films these days? And the, and the, the, the directors and the actors and actresses that have made fools of themselves and generations since their initial popularity well I think that this is going to be a really great night edifying and I can't wait to talk with Mike Williams he'll be on with us in just a second tomorrow night we got King Randall on the show Matt and Tony Black on Friday night next week we're going to do the deer scene at some point and uh, what else we have we have Diana Posilka. That's right. American Cosmic is coming on next week. Shane and Melody from Real Appalachia. That's going to be a nice travel and culture night next week. Uh, Greg Carlwood the week after that. Tristan Gooley. Isaac Weishaupt. 
And then, uh, oh, it, August 28th, Nino Rodriguez is coming on the show. And I think I'll be going on his sometime after that. They got in touch with me. I said, oh, I know that name. Let's get to know Nino. Uh, Jeff Wamsley. This is going to be a, this is a new edition. I can't wait for this one. This is on August 30th. Wednesday, August 30th, Jeff Wamsley of the Mothman Museum and Festival. Now, they're doing a Mothman Fest in September, and I want to get a, I want to get a, do a whole Mothman night on August 30th. Then we got Mike King from Profiling Evil on with us August 31st. That'll be a nice true crime night. Jeff Harmon is coming on, astrologer. He's coming on with us in sept- on September 6th. So we'll be able to talk whether or not, you know, things like whether or not there actually is going to be. What do you think, Jeff? Do you think there's going to be an election? I got to get Robert Phoenix on the uh, on the show sometime soon as well. Get him back in. But uh, after that, Jay Dyer, September 7th. That's tentative right now. Frank, uh, Frank Pellegrino and Chrissy Mayer will be back in the studio September 13th. Nick Hinton in September. We've got a uh, a lot. We've got a lot of good stuff happening. History shows. I already have our Columbus Day episode um, all worked out. I've got our Halloween itinerary already worked out. Trust me. Just sit back, relax, sponsor the show, and trust me. We'll have our coffee, our coffee line all hammered out soon, too. All right. Uh, let's go into the grab bag, shall we? The first one up is from The Hill. And the special counsel, one secret search warrant for Trump's Twitter account. So the molestation continues. We need, we need, I'll take your pants off. That's, that's Jack Smith, the tip of the molestation uh, spear. That's really what it all is, continues. Special counsel, Jack Beaverface Smith subpoenaed and obtained a search warrant related to former President Trump's Twitter account. According to court filings unsealed on Wednesday, the case decided in July ordered Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, I'm not saying X, to turn over the documents sought by Smith and also fine the company $350,000 for a three-day delay in complying with a court order on the records. Man. Man, you see, this is why they're also fighting Missouri v. Biden, tooth and nail. Because this incestuous relationship between the government and social media, that was just a, a an open-ended back channel. They got whatever they wanted. They're all on the same page. Now, of course, a $350,000 fine for Twitter, which is like the, uh, the, the red-headed stepchild of the social media world right now because it's not completely owned by the, uh, the the system like it used to be, not completely. So there you have it. And even Trump now is saying that all of the, the legal weight and all the legal problems that are being concocted and thrown at him is going to have some kind of a, it's going to be some kind of a hindrance on his campaigning. You have to, duh, absolutely, that continues. Uh, here's another little something. It's actually a big something, and it's it's crazy. Almost the entire island of Maui is on fire right now. This is from Zero Hedge. 
Apocalyptic scene. Out-of-control wildfire spreads on Hawaii's Maui Island. Shocking footage of an out-of-control wildfire burning in Hawaii has been shared on Twitter, showing the devastation. The epicenter of the destruction is in the Hawaiian town of Lahaina on the island of Maui. CBS News said people were jumping into the water to escape flames and smoke from the wind-fueled wildfire. Strong wind and dry conditions have been fueling the fire. As of early Wednesday local time, fires were active in, um, I don't know, what is this, one, two, three, four, five different areas in Maui. Here's, here's a little bit more right from Hawaiian News. HawaiianNewsNow.com. Listen to this, the latest. Maui County said that three active wildfires continue to burn with more than 100 firefighters trying to battle the flames. Firefighters weren't able to use helicopters to douse the flames Tuesday because of the high winds, but helicopters have gone up on Wednesday. Maui Mayor Richard Bison said that there are six confirmed fatalities from the fires. Details on the victims were not immediately available. More than 2,100 people were housed overnight at a county's, one of the county's four emergency shelters. Maui Preparatory Academy in uh, uh, Napoli, oh, and a few other places, high schools and uh, memorial centers. Authorities confirmed at least 20 people suffered serious burns in the wildfires and several were airlifted to Oahu. Uh, three are in critical condition. Governor Josh Green said it's almost certain the damage estimate from the blaze will be in the billions. The state plans to fly 4,000 tourists out of Maui on Wednesday to Oahu. Multiple sources confirmed to Hawaii's News Now that they will be put up at Hawaii Convention Center. Authorities said that at least 2,000 people were waiting uh, in the airport there. Tens of thousands of people across Maui are now without power after high winds down more than 30 poles and flames destroyed even more infrastructure. Cell service is almost non-existent in some places except for those with satellite phones. For those trying to get reunited with loved ones, the American Red Cross has established a website to help. Many flights into Maui from the mainland have been canceled. Travelers are being urged to check with their carrier before going to the airport. And at least 14 people have been rescued, had to be rescued from waters off the coast on Tuesday night after jumping into the water to escape the raging wildfire. Authorities confirmed among them two young children who were reunited with their families. Thank God. Thank God for that. So that's happening right now. I'm sure that there's going to be more on that um, all throughout the night into tomorrow. I texted Roseanne, too, to see. I know she's she's working out of Texas now. I don't know if that it was a permanent move, if she still has friends, family, and property out there in Hawaii. Just wanted to know if that was, that was uh, affecting her in any way. But... We'll be on top of this because it's it's starting to make the rounds on social media and people are getting up with, with what's happening. Here's a little something that may be relevant to tonight's show, especially when we're talking about we're talking about the music industry and Tavistock and mind control and how you influence a population. Well, what happens when you don't even need flesh and blood individuals anymore? I know. It's just not the same. It's just not the same when you don't have uh, slave-like control over another human being to use them like a puppet, to be able to drain them of their life force and to be able to influence others through them. I, I know, it's just it just takes all the fun out of mind control if you don't have a human being there, but the AI aspect in music 
deep fakes is we've talked about it before it's going to become more and more prevalent of a question that needs to be answered here it is again this is from uh, financialtimes.com google and universal music negotiate deal over ai deep fakes new technology that can mimic artists voices have been seen as a growing threat Google and Universal Music are in talks to license artists' melodies and voices for songs generated by artificial intelligence as the music business tries to monetize one of its biggest threats. The discussions, confirmed by four people familiar with the matter, aim to strike a partnership for an industry that is grappling with the implications of new AI technology. The rise of generative AI has bred uh, a surge in deepfake songs that can convincingly mimic the voices, lyrics, or sound of an established artist, often without their consent. How do you really limit this, though? I, I mean, there's, I guess there will be places where this, is, this, this generative technology is going to become more and more consumer-grade, Things that we thought could only, I mean, technology, recording technology, you thought you could only ever or will only ever be able to access by ponying up the dough at a local recording studio, going there and paying an engineer to put together a demo for one thing or another that quickly came home. Analog technology became bite sized and brought home. We know all about that. Buying all those Tascam in our first bands. All those Tascam um, cassette recorders, they can just bust everything over and you know break it down and clear up more tracks, add more layers in there. It was a disaster. We tried our best, and then of course it just we started going to home studios, and then everything became digitized. You didn't need, you definitely didn't need tape. You didn't need anything like that anymore. So so AI is going to be the same. Well, I'm sure that there's going to be places where some kind of royalty will be attached to whatever you make. But if somebody really generates a song with a AI mimicked voice and it just goes viral somewhere, gets passed around one place. I mean, th- this is going to be impossible. This is there are some fires that are going to be impossible to put out when it comes to this. The rise of generative AI. Frank Sinatra's voice has been used on a version of the hip hop song Gangsta's Paradise. While Johnny Cash's has been deployed on the pop single Barbie Girl, a YouTube user called Plugging AI offers songs imitating the voices of the deceased rappers Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. I actually just had a couple of friends today send me an AI-generated um, version of Slayer's Rain and Death, uh, uh, Rain and Blood, with um, with uh, James Hetfield's voice singing Rain and Blood, and um, yeah, it was. It was. Didn't sound. It, it sounded off, but it's getting there. And these kinds of things are happening. Well, they're just going to happen more and more, just for kicks. And, uh, and and when it's put into original stuff, original beats or anything like that, you're going to be able to generate a cameo that would otherwise have cost you millions of dollars. But then again, how big does it get before you get slammed? Before you get tagged? And does it really matter at that point? As long as people are listening to your song, they know who made it, you know? So what do they say about no press? No press being bad? Especially if people... If people like what you got. Anyway. Anyway, I don't think Frank Sinatra's making any real cameos these days. Hasn't been for a couple of decades, but 
there you have it. An artist's voice is often the most valuable part of their livelihood, unless they're dead. And public persona. And to steal it, no matter the means, is wrong, says Universal General Counsel Jeffrey Harlston told lawmakers last month. Discussions between Google and Universal Music are at an early stage and no product launch is imminent, but the goal is to develop a tool for fans to create these tracks legitimately and pay the owners of the copyrights for it. And people close to the situation, artists would have the choice to opt in, the people said. Hmm. Well, like I said, tonight we're going to be talking about the old days of controlling music and therefore controlling culture. I can't wait to learn a little something. Mike Williams, Sage of Quay, he'll be on with us in just a second. Let's get started. Don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen, and share this show. Wherever you're watching, just hit the share button and get it out somewhere and uh, help a brother out. That would be really wonderful. We'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. One ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! So a few things before we bring Mike on. Like I said, the, the, the real reason why I wanted to put this conversation on the books was because the assassination news, um, the update of the, the assassination at the Dakota, Lennon's assassination, the news of the new uh, evidence that's been made public about a second gun, a second caliber bullet, implicating a second shooter that has never been part of the public story anyway um, I wanted to just say hey you know there's so much more mystery about the the Beatles I'd love to jump into it I want more I want more about the Paul is dead stuff what about helter skelter I want it all that's why we got Mike Williams and my parents are probably not gonna like this one if they end up listening at some point because you know I just want to know I just I want to know like oh, stop ruining it stop ruining it I can just hear my mother but we are going to have time. I, I we're not going to have time for many calls tonight because of the the limitation in the second half where we're b- bouncing off at 8:30. Um, so I'm going to pay some extra special attention to the super chats for if there are any burning questions that you guys have, follow up questions that you guys have for Mike Williams um, as we go on with this conversation. The subject matter, I got to just say, is voluminous. 
So even with the Super Chat questions coming in, there may be some that we can't take because of time constraints. But um, doesn't mean that I won't read them at a later date, i.e. tomorrow or anything like that. But you know me. I, I like to try to get the audience involved and, um, and working with what little time we have. But as far as our guest tonight goes, let's just get right on into his background. Mike Williams is a critical thinker and the host of the popular internet site, Sage of Quay Radio. I have the link for Mike's work all in the description of this episode. you got to go check it out. He's also the founder of the long-running alternative news blog, Sage of Quay News, and musician, a songwriter. L- like myself, Mike's content is dedicated to awakening the masses the masses to help bring humanity back into our natural existence of living in truth and serving creation. Man, do we need a lot of that. And Mike Williams, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on, my friend. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, well, you know, it, I, I, I've been waiting for it for many weeks now because you've been on the schedule. And I knew that there was just going to be just a, a mountain of stuff to do. First, let me ask you because I found you just recently when we were looking for guests and taking suggestions about this subject matter and i would love just to hear from you what uh, what's the 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 story behind the name sage of quay <laughs> it, there's nothing mystical about it um i i am originally a blogger frank and my blog goes back to 2011 or 2012 it's been over a decade now and so i was posting a lot of alternative research and alternative news and uh, that type of stuff. And so I would have conversations with my family, you know, because I was kind of like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, the running joke was I was a sage because I was looking at all this stuff. And the Quay part of it um, is an abbreviation for a town that I live in. And uh, so it became Sage of Quay, which was, it started off as a joke. It started off uh, you know, just my family kind, kind of uh, poking at me a little bit because I was the, you know, I was the family conspiracy theorist, and uh, it just stuck. And uh, I, in one show, I think with Peter Tompkins, I had mentioned that I wasn't sure I really even liked uh, the branding, you know. But it, it, here it is, all these years later. So oh yeah, let's go with it. Uh, that's exactly the way it works. You know, quite quite frankly, was just supposed to be a uh, a hold me over name. And because I said, you know, there's nothing too, there's not, there's nothing too original about it. It's just, it's a spin off of my name, and I'm a, you know, the show's about just whatever, talking bluntly about one thing or another. So let's just go for it. And then I just got lazy, and I, I guess there's no going back now. But you know, as far as alternative research goes, you people like you must just be uh, drowning in it because official stories for literally anything are nonsense. I don't. I don't think I trust an official story for any anything, uh, especially when it comes to elections, the local dog catcher election. I just assume. I just assume that we're not learning something uh, about everything. It, it, it. You must be having a field day with uh, the world we're living in now. Oh yeah. I mean, the world is filled with official stories and official narratives. That's the propaganda. So that's what people are fed, and uh, a lot of it is fed through the television set. That's what they absorb sitting in their living rooms. So all of it has to be questioned, Frank, all of it. There should be no sacred cows. Okay, well, the the Beatles is a very sacred cow. And I know you've done this a lot, so I apologize if this is you know rudimentary to you and you've done it a million times. But when we talk about official stories, 
Let's see where this one begins. I uh, The Cinderella story of the Beatles. This is what I know. We have four dashing young lads from Liverpool who spend lots of sweaty nights in Hamburg honing their skills on stage, building a fan base, and finally being swept up by Brian Epstein, and then boom, they're on Ed Sullivan, and the British invasion begins. Is that everything? Is that, a, is, is that all we need to know about this? Well, that's that's pretty much the the overview of the official story. We have these four working class uh, lads coming out of Liverpool. Like you said, they connect with Brian Epstein, and uh, he's then able to get them signed to a major record label, EMI, under the tutelage of George Martin. And then from there, it's unprecedented fame and fortune. So, and it's it's important to uh, to understand the timeline. You know, the Beatles started in Hamburg in August of 1960. And they landed in America on uh, February 7th, 1964. So they did all of this in three and a half years. And if we truly understand um, their beginnings, then their story starts to come apart. I, I call it, it's, it's a house of cards. So I asked a lot of questions and I looked into a lot of things that a lot of people didn't, or if, if they heard about it they just ignored it because they just didn't want to go there because as i mentioned to my audience all the time frank the official story of the beatles is a great story it's a story that everybody wants to embrace it's you know the rags to riches story yeah. and uh so i embraced it for the longest time and it wasn't until 2016 when i re read the first edition of the memoirs of billy shears that you know i was reading that book and thinking to myself, well, what is this? What's going on here? And I had two options. I could just put the book down and go back into the matrix, or I could take a look at the, um, the statements that the book was making, the claims it was, make, it was making, and then go about researching it and see how much of it is true and how much of it was not. And uh, a lot of it is very, very true. Okay, so I, I guess... Because uh, I I, I, I want to know exactly since that that is your uh, the point of of this this you know this Genesis story um, of yours uh, your awakening on this I definitely want to know exactly what started waking you you know throwing the cold water in the face from the Billy Shears book but I am glad that you brought up the whole idea that there was just this meteoric three years where they were turned into they went from rags to riches it's just enormous because. One of the more casual conversations I always have with friends of mine who are fellow uh, Beatle admirers and fans is that it's the span of time that they operated in that is really something else, even just for public consumption, like American public from 64 to 70. I mean, the, you, you're talking about six years. It seems like 30 years of career for most people were jammed into six years. So, um, I, and, and, and I'm talking about multiple album releases a year. So I started one, I, I just, this is just like a machine. This is a, pr a prodigious, it's just huge. And I once read that George Martin didn't even think too much of them as musicians. So, number one, what do you think was so, um, what, would, what was it? about these four in particular that they were latched on to and do you think that they were getting some help writing their music uh, they got a lot of help writing their music in fact um i put the case forward that from 1962 through 1966 i don't believe they wrote anything 
all of the music between that period was ghostwritten, and uh, the recorded tracks were laid down by studio musicians. From 67 to 70, uh, John and George uh, were writing more of their own material and playing on more of the recorded tracks, but the Beatles were still utilizing ghostwriters and uh, studio players to fill out the albums. And um, so fr from 67 on, Sergeant Pepper on, that's when Billy Shears uh, picked up the role of Paul McCartney. Because biological Paul was replaced back in the fall of 1966. So there were three dates that researchers go by. Some will say it was August of 66. Some will say it was September. Others will say it's November. I go with the uh, September 11th date because of the... Uh, of the importance of September 11th in the occult circles. So um, the Beatles, the Beatles are a creation of Tavistock, um, as the Rolling Stones were as well. And in fact, the entire British invasion and all of the genres of music that followed. So the first thing that everybody has to really get their arms around is the Tavistock Institute, which started as the Tavistock Clinic back in 1920 and became the Tavistock Institute in 1947. And Tavistock is in the business of social engineering, um, mind manipulation, you know, those types of activities. And in fact, what I recommend to my audience, I uh, hope you can see this, yep. is the, um, the Tav Tavistock Institute. It's a book by Daniel Estulin. It's called Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering, The Masses. It's a very, very good book. It's a great book as a primer. Another book that um, folks should take a look at is The Committee of 300 um, by Dr. John Coleman. And this book came out in the early 1990s. And at this point, Coleman uh, was doing research into the deep state. He was a former British intelligence officer or asset. And um, so the book contains a tremendous amount of his research, uh, culminating 15 to 20 years of his research by the time he, he got to write this book. And he talks about the Tavistock Institute as well. The interesting about Coleman's book is that um, the Beatles are mentioned in it uh, several times, but the book does not major on the, uh, on the Beatles. It's talking about the Committee of 300, which is, which is made up of 300 individuals that are responsible for implementing the strategy throughout the world, the internationalist agenda. And, uh, and Tavistock tucks in under the Committee of 300, as does other internationalist organizations like Davos, the World Economic Forum, uh, the Bilderbergs, um, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the whole, the whole you know, um, bundle mm -hmm. of these groups that we... We know about, especially if you're into the uh, the alternative and conspiracy research. And what I try to explain to my audience, Frank, is that there is an international stru international structure that's in place, and it's been in place for a very long time. And so we have organizations like the United Nations, the World Bank, um, the World Health Organization, um, the International Bank of Settlements. All of these organizations are there for a purpose, for a reason, and they constitute the shadow government. They constitute the deep state. They don't sit there in those buildings and play cards all day. 
plotting and strategizing, and they have been for many decades. And so Tavistock is all intertwined into this. Tavistock is connected at the hip with the Rockefeller um, uh, Foundation, Ford Foundation, um, the with uh, the CIA, with MI6, all the intelligence organizations. Um, they're located in London. And another thing that uh, we have to understand is that uh, these internationalist organizations are all interconnected and uh, they're not separate. So when we talk about MI6 as an example and the CIA, a lot of times people like to categorize them as CIA United States, MI6 Britain. And that's true. I mean, that's true on the surface, but um, they're really one. They just happen to operate, their primary focus is in individual countries, or at least that is the perception. But um, they're all sharing information, they're all operating uh, as one. And so we have, you know, we really do, we have a world order. And they're orchestrating things from, from the top. And they give the masses the illusion that that they have sovereign governments and there's nationalism and they have freedom and, and their vote counts and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, none of that stuff is true. It's all a facade. It's all a veneer. It's all an illusion. So going back into the early 1900s, there was Alistair Crowley. And Alistair Crowley, um, he had his um, his religion, Thelema. And think of a little... Uh, Philema as it's it's Luciferianism is what it is, and Crowley was very influential and in part, and in fact he was part of the elite structure. He was part of you know the uh, the elite class, the cultic elite, and uh, he was working with British intelligence during World War One. Um, if you if you read about Crowley, uh, there are researchers that will say that his his work with the British government, especially with intelligence, ran right up through World War II. He passed away in 1947 at the age of 72. Crowley had defined a new age. It's called the Eon of Horus, which is equivalent to the Age of Aquarius. And before the Eon of Horus was the Eon of Osiris, which is the, the Piscean Age, which is the age that we essentially began to tra transition out of starting December 21st of 2012. So when everybody was talking about the Mayan calendar and all that hoopla and the end of the world, what that what they were really talking about in, in an encoded way is the end of the Piscean Age and entering now into a new age, the Age of Aquarius, which Crowley defined as the Eon of Horus. Uh, Crowley had said that the Piscean Age or the Eon of Osiris was an age of oppression. Humans were shackled. They weren't free. They didn't pursue their um, their pure, true will. Uh, it was all rules-based by authorities outside of themselves. And with the Eon of Horus, that was all going to change. So the, the cultic elite, the controllers that reside within the pyramid of power, I have concluded most of them, the majority of them, uh, subscribe to Crowley's belief system, to his philosophy, to his religion of Thelema. And Crowley's teachings are rooted in the Egyptian mysteries. It goes back to Egypt. So we have characters like Osiris, Isis, Set, Horus. 
the the the, the pantheon of of Egyptian gods. And Crowley's belief was that there was going to be a shift from this period or this age of oppression to this this age of liberation where humans would be unshackled. And that's his, his eon of Horus. But in order to make the shift from one age, the old age, to the new age, you cannot have any remnants of the old age. This is a, a main tenet or principle of alchemy. So the old system, the old ways, the old structures have got to be taken down. And that's what we're going through right now. That's what we have been going through. In Egyptian mythology, the the god of destruction and chaos is Set. Set is the god that Horus battles. Horus is the liberator god. He's the savior messiah god. And Horus represents the light. So the battle between Set and Horus represents the classic battle between the dark and the light. And what I explained to my audience in a recent uh, um, presentation I did, Frank, this is why we have the Great Reset. What the controllers are communicating out, because they are Egyptian mystery zealots, that is where their religious and philosophical grounding, that, that's, it resides there. And so they go, th they go through all of their occultism, which includes all of these rituals, these ceremonies, the alchemy, to transform and transition from the old age to the new age, from the, the Piscean age to the Aquarian age, or the Eon of Osiris to the Eon of Horus. And so everything that's going on right now, folks, all this chaos, all this destruction, um, th this is really a reenactment of the, of the set Horus battle in Egypt. And I know this sounds like really like crazy, crazy stuff. But when we understand that the people who control are occultists, then we can better understand why it is they're doing the things that they're doing. It makes no sense to the average person. They look at the, the human population as profane. We have Yuval Harari saying that humans are, are hackable animals. It basically sums it up right there. Mm -hmm. Right, so the re why am I why am I giving this background? Because because this transition from one eon or age, the old to the new, the Beatles played a major major role in breaking down the old structure. So through music, which is a major tool in the toolbox of of the controllers, the, the music industry and the entertainment industry are huge. Through those two industries, they manipulate every which way from Sunday. They will steer humanity. They will place them from, you know, move them from point A to point B. They can change belief systems. They can, um, they can change morals. They can change ethics just by inundating people with the music and what it is they're watching on their television and what's coming out of Hollywood. These two industries are major, major social engineering vehicles for the controllers. So going back to the Beatles, so we're, you know we're in the 1950s. We have traditional values. Christianity is the uh, is the um, the religious institution that uh, is really the, is foundational to uh, 
to the uh, the Piscean Age, and all of that had to go away. All of that had to be broken down, because in the minds of the controllers, going back to Crowley's work, all of that structure, that's oppressive, and we've got to break away from that. All this rules-based stuff has got to go. And so, in order to break it down, they, you know, they had major levers with their music industry and their entertainment industry, and the Beatles were their prize psychological initiative. Uh, we which can began see, in 1962. Definitely see that. It, you know, we, we talk a lot about. In fact, it was just Monday night. I, we were making some references to Laurel Canyon again, and yeah. the and the counterculture movements of the 1960s. We we talk a lot about uh, weaving that into liberation theology, the sexual revolutions. I mean, what the 60s and 70s. I mean, you can see there is a it's a major point of demarcation between what is an old world and a world that is being built right in front of us in Tavistock. Um, the old Frankfurt School, we can yep. we can see a lot of that crossing over here. And you know, uh, you and I we spoke a little bit off air, um, and I, and I had I had brought up another one of those very casual conversations I would have with my friends when whenever the Beatles would come up is that you know from from 1963 to 1965 you have about I don't know four or five. Uh, album releases from this band, very happy-go-lucky album releases, very tri- uh, uh, clean-cut, whimsical. Uh, you know, just, just I don't know. Skip down the, the, the hold my hand and let's skip down the, uh, the, the street kind of music. And then comes that December 1965 Rubber Soul release, and and as I said before regardless of what the, the drug usage and anything else that's going on behind the scenes that was a mainstay in the music industry and especially with the grooming and the bringing up the, of the Beatles, you can tell that at this point with Rubber Soul, there was something that had changed. The train tracks had shifted and what was being presented to the public was suddenly different. All of a sudden, they got the shaggy hair. This is within a couple of months of the of the revolver album coming out things are just getting darker a little bit more uh hippie looking a little bit more druggy looking i mean this this just psychedelic vibe comes up out of nowhere and uh i i can it, that's really interesting considering again these institutions that are behind uh movements like this that are always playing toward public perception and shifting of and manipulating of consciousness so uh, talk a little bit about that right there that that uh, that initial that initial um uh shifting of presentation to the public with the band yeah so the beatles for i should let me just start this way and then i'll, I'll make my way there quickly for you frank um we see images of the beatles um there's occulted images. The one that really grabbed me was the occult images of them with bird cages on their heads. And a bird cage is Illuminati symbolism for mind control. I'm going to play while you while you talk about this. I'm going to play your three minute video. I know you just put out an occult symbolism uh, compilation for the Beatles. Just a, I think like a yesterday. I'm going to play this. You just go right ahead. Okay. So the reason why uh, I did that video, Frank, was because a lot of people have a very difficult time breaking the conditioning that the Beatles were not this clean-cut band, especially in the early days, that everybody thinks they were. There was a dark underbelly that 
um, has occultism all around the Beatles. I, I tell my audience that the Beatles are immersed in the occult. So if we take a look at that particular symbolism, what that said to me was that there was a possibility, and I think it's a, a probability, that the Beatles were in mind control programs from an early age. And by the time they were brought to Germany in August of 1960 by their then manager, who was their handler, Alan Williams, they were being groomed to play the role that they ended up playing in Beatlemania. So when the Beatles got to Hamburg in August of 1960, uh, they were marginal musicians at best, and they were not songwriters. And they spent a lot of time in Germany, and Germany was um, basically uh, a venue for them to build up their performance skills so that they can take the songs that were written for them and take them out on the road. So think of Hamburg as boot camp. So they were being groomed from as early as August of, 19, August of 1960 when they ended up in Germany. By the way, Germany is a hotbed for Tavistock. Aside from the Hamburg gigs that they were doing, from 1961 through 1963, they were doing almost daily gigs throughout, uh, locally throughout Liverpool and the UK. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, these guys are, you know, they're 20, 21 years old at this point. Who's setting up all these gigs? How are they getting all of these, these venues to say, yeah, come on in? So what that's starting to tell us is that there's a machine behind them, okay? Um, and as I mentioned earlier, when we started the call, started the, uh, the show, they went from August 1960 to February of 1964, three and a half years. They had rockets on their shoes. The, traje the trajectory is unbelievable. And what they were doing in the background, Hamburg, all these gigs in the UK, um, like I said, that was, that was getting their performance skills up. Not songwriting, because Tavistock and EMI already had their songwriters. The Beatles were actors, performers that were going to be, uh, they were the veneer that the public was going to see, to build this, this fantastical story about these four guys, especially two songwriters known as John Lennon and Paul McCartney. In January of 1962, they have their DECA audition. DECA turns them down, said, nope, not going to sign you. And the official story tells us that between 1956 and 1962, the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney specifically, wrote 100 songs between them. But when they got the, to the Decker audition, they 15 songs, three of them were originals, and none of them were noteworthy. Then Brian Epstein takes a tape to George Martin um, to play uh, a demo for, for Martin. George Martin turns them down, says, nope, based upon what I hear, not going to sign them. And it wasn't until a couple of months after that According to the memoirs of Billy Shears, George Martin got a phone call from, you know, from the top office and said, you're going to take them on. And that's how George Martin ended up with them. And when they did sign the contract with EMI in, in June of 1962, initially George Martin didn't even work with the band. He had, he had delegated you know, to another 
producer, an assistant producer to work, work with the band. When the recordings weren't working out, that's when George Martin received another call from the top office and said, okay, no delegation. You've got to work with them directly. In all likelihood, George Martin was working hand-in-hand -hand with Theodore Adorno. You mentioned the Frankfurt School. Mm -hmm. That's the Adorno, the Frankfurt School. So the managing directors of the whole Beatles operation, uh, I have deducted, was Theodore Adorno and George Martin. And again, the Beatles were just in a position... I know this is very difficult for a lot of people to get their heads wrapped around, and some people are probably getting very angry right now as I'm speaking, but they were props in this PSYOP. Okay? So I'm going to read a couple of comments that George Martin made going back into 1962. To Brian Epstein, if you want, to, if you want me to judge them based on what you are claiming, I'm sorry, I need to turn you down. And who, who collected, where, where were these published again? Who, um, who was present for this to be spoken again? These were, these were actual um, interviews, uh, recorded interviews that George Martin did. Okay. Okay, so these, these, are, on, these are on tape. These, these were recorded. Um, in another uh, interview, he said, upon meeting the Beatles in 62, I wasn't terribly impressed with the first stuff that they did. And then in a, in a, uh, a documentary uh, produced by George Martin, he sat down with fellow composer and broadcaster Howard Goodall, who is, you know, he's, he's a composer in his own right. And he said to, uh, to Howard Goodall, they had this wonderful charisma. They made you feel good. But I thought their music was rubbish. And he also went on to say that they had nothing behind them, so he looked at these four guys and thought, none of them shines above all the others, so he's going to take them on as a group. In other words, there wasn't a person in the group that would, he thought stood out as a star. And remember, I said that the, the official story says they wrote John and Paul between them, 100 songs between 1956 and 62. Yet, when they get to George Martin, Martin says that Love Me Do is the best song I could find from them at the time. I was very conscious it was not the big hit I was looking for. And then in another interview that I have, George Martin says they certainly had no, and then he pauses, he ha he's measuring his words. He says, they certainly had no, well, it wasn't too obvious, they can be songwriters at this stage. Love Me Do was the best that they had. And this is coming from George Martin, so a lot of times, you know, when people get angry with me, when I talk about this stuff, I'm like, hey, no, it's no, Mike. What you're saying right there is is pretty interesting because for somebody like George, you start, you start wondering yourself: Is this a is this a guy who maybe is just um, he's not moving with the times? Like, no, no, no. I know yeah. people people who work in the industry at that level. They may not like the music, but they understand what hits are. You like you ever watch the uh, the Sopranos, the Hesh yes. character? He goes, "Hey, listen, I, I know a hit is a hit is a hit. Doesn't matter what era it comes from, what genre." Um, so, but but to 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 hear him say that "Love Me Do" is the only thing they got when, again, in the first three years that they were known to the public. I mean, it's like every other song was a massive hit. All of a sudden, where does where does all that come from? All of a sudden, that right. that that does bring up a question for, uh, in my mind as you read through this. Yeah, 
Yeah, so in June of 1962, when they had the contract, if we put that as a stake in the ground, they had nothing. And then when they released their first debut album, UK album, Please Please Me, in March of 1963, March 22nd, by the way, 322, all of a sudden, eight original songs show up on the album. The same thing, you know, in November of 1963, on November 22nd, 1122, the same day that Kennedy was assassinated, they released their second album with the Beatles, eight more original songs. Then after that, they released uh, Hard Day's Night, 13 original songs. And we can go on and on and on. In the early days, they were on the hook for two albums a year. Mm -hmm. So they had to put two albums out in 1963, two albums out in 64, and then two albums out in 19. Uh, 65, and then you know one album in uh, 66 before Sgt. Pepper, which that album in August of 66 was Revolver. But there's also something um, that's important to 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 understand. Frank is there was an interview that Paul McCartney and John Lennon did with the BBC back in August of 1966, August 5th. In fact, it was the day that Revolver was um, was released. And I'm going to read to the audience some of the the quotes from Paul McCartney. And the reason why I'm doing this is because there is mythology all around the Beatles. And right now, Beatle fans, many of them are sitting there thinking the Beatles wrote music all the time. They wrote on the road, they wrote in hotels, they wrote in limos, they wrote in restaurants, they wrote when they were on the crapper. And that's not true. Okay? When I, I did a presentation back in April of 2020 titled did the Beatles write all their own music? And I took my audience through my logic as to why I thought that this constant, you know, persistent writing did not happen. Because there was all this other stuff that the Beatles had to do um, during these time periods, especially when they hit the States in 1964 and there was essentially this nonstop touring. And, and, making, mu and making movies, too, in between. And making movies, exactly. And, and, and I'll get into that in a little bit. We could talk about the Help movie and how John said... They were in a fog of marijuana during the entire filming of Help, yet people want to believe that they were writing songs when they were on the film sets. That's, that's another myth, that while they were filming A Hard Day's Night and Help, they were also writing songs. So let me just put my readers on, Frank, real quick, because I'm at that age, buddy. I'm not as young as you. That's Let me right. see. That's all right. Um, Paul said in the interview that... Um, the only time they need to force themselves, this is a very, very peculiar way to word this, the only time they need to force themselves to write songs is when an album or a film comes up. So what is that telling you? Well, it's telling you they're not writing when they're on the road, they're not writing while they're on holiday, they're not writing when they're on film sets. And then goes on to say that it's a bit of a drag for the first two songs, he's talking about writing. The last LP, Revolver, took weeks just trying to get one song written. And then Paul goes on to say, we don't write between LPs normally, maybe one or two. Then we write a great big batch. And what he's saying is, we did not write in between albums. He's saying we wrote in great big batches when it was time to record an album. And we can get into that in a little bit, as you know, how that by itself is extremely problematic, writing batches of songs well, essentially I, on demand you know you know something there mike just to be to play devil's advocate here because you know, i'm very interested in all this stuff but at the same time i'm a uh 
I'm a I'm a fan of I'm a fan of the this band's history and and the catalog mm-hmm. and regardless of who put it out there raised on it. They have a lot of forgettable songs too. I can see how these can be written in large batches and uh it, you know especially after those first 5. That is that is pretty a that is pretty anomalous right there. How many hits came out in about three years? But once we get past Rubber Soul, there, there's, there is a lot of forgettable stuff there that I can see is just filler songs, too. Um, and then, then not only that, but how do you account for every last... Well, uh, save for Ringo. He, he's always done whatever he could. He's never practiced and just kind of goes where he's told. But uh, George, John, and Paul, they, they all had... Um, pretty busy solo careers afterwards where they were, do you believe that they were writing for themselves at that point? It's a, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. They, they had in their solo careers and between 67 and 70, as I mentioned earlier, John and George were writing more of their own stuff, but the, the Beatles music was still being uh, complemented with outside songwriters and studio players on the recorded tracks. Okay. Now, we could argue that there were Beatles songs that were, you know, less popular than a lot of other Beatles songs. But if we take a if we take a look at an album like Revolve, uh, excuse me, Rubber Soul, fourteen songs on the album, and during those recording sessions, which we're told took place over thirty days, from October eleventh to November eleventh, along with the fourteen songs on the album. They had to record two more songs for a double A-side single, which was We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper. I would argue that most of the songs on Rubber Soul are not filler track. Some might argue, they might say maybe one or two, maybe, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I've just picked one of the songs. I <laughs> drew a blank there for a second. But you know, if you, we have 16 really top shelf songs at the end of the day. If you're going to come into us, if you're going to come into the studio with no backlog of music like they did with Rubber Soul, that's the official story. No backlog of music, um, little bits of this song here and there, but but it's essentially nothing. So they had a clean sheet at coming in. So you've got to write 16 songs, original songs, then you have to rehearse them. Write them, rehearse them. It's not like you it's not like you bang it with a magic wand and, and, and poof. All of a sudden, you know, a song appears completely done, rehearsed, arranged, and all that stuff. So they have to write them, rehearse them, arrange them, record them. 16 songs in 30 days. Even in this interview, when they they had this interview back on August 5th with the BBC, the BBC interviewer had commented, he said, um, he questioned the feasibility of writing 12 songs for an album. And then John responded, it is some days. But the most important thing, and I'll get back to your point in a moment, but one of the most important things that Paul says during this interview, because he's letting the cat out of the bag, Paul in that interview said that we're limited as a group. We're the first to say we're not all that good musically. And then later in that interview, he says that they didn't play on yesterday. They didn't have to show is what he said. That's interesting, right? Because the official narrative for the song yesterday says that Paul McCartney played acoustic guitar in that song. Yeah, in this interview, it, it, it's just strange. Paul said he didn't show up. It's was it cello and, and acoustic guitar on that one? They didn't. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so Paul gets credit for playing the guitar in that song, but in any interview he says that he didn't. So the point I'm making is that the Beatles, these, the seven albums from 1963 through 1966 is prolific, okay? Those seven albums contained 77 original compositions. And again, we have to go back to August of 1960, marginal at best musicians, no songwriting ability. We have to go back to George Martin's comments when he met them. And then when he started working with them, the only thing he said they had behind them was, Love Me Do, and it was not the hit that he was looking for. Norman Smith, who was their engineer through Revolver, in an interview in 1971, said that they were horrible in the studio. Horrible. And then we have crazy stories like uh, to finish, to record, I should say, and complete their first debut album, Please Please Me, which was released again in March of 1963. They recorded 10 of the 14 songs in one day. That's the story. In one day, 10 of the 14 songs. That's rough. Were, uh, that It's impossible. Yeah, that's rough. Okay. 16 songs in 30 days, not going to happen. Especially you're talking about uh, production style here where you have the entire band uh, musically. You're not tracking that one by one. You're not taking the drum tracks first, then you're laying down the bass. This is the band together, correct? It has yeah, to, that's this, how this, would be, this would be the band together. So if we, take, if we focus on Rubber Soul, because Rubber Soul is a smoking gun. It's a smoking gun for two reasons. One, the possibility of writing 16 original songs, write, rehearse, arrange, record. No, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not possible, okay? Especially when we're talking about the, the caliber of songs that are on Rubber Soul. Another example that I use, a later example, this time not with Biological Paul, but with Billy Shears. That's, that's Paul's replacement, because Paul was replaced. We gotta get we gotta get to this in the next five minutes, because we only have 20 minutes left, and this is such a huge part. I need yeah. to, okay, go okay. ahead. Quickly. In a recent, I, I have been telling people that when they did the, the get back sessions, the let it be sessions, the original plan was to do 14 original songs and get them written, rehearsed, and recorded within, in less than three weeks, two and a half weeks. Well, that didn't happen, right? We know the let it be sessions, the get back sessions ran 30 days, and in fact, they ran way past the 30 days. Nobody's, nobody talks about the other sessions that took place and re-recording throughout 1969 going into early 1970. In a recent interview, Paul McCartney, Billy Shears, said that the original objective of, of the Get Back Sessions was ridiculous. It was impossible. It couldn't get done. By him saying that, he, that this is a band now that in 1969, as a recording unit, have been together for seven years. He comes out like four days ago saying it was a non-starter. There was no way we were going to be able to do that. And what folks have to understand is the Beatles narrative is loaded up with those types of fantastical stories, like 20, recording 27 demos in one day in an, on an unknown day in May, in May of 1968, leading into the White Album recording sessions, writing over 30 songs while they were in India when they weren't all there at the same time. Ringo left after two weeks. Billy left after 30 days. John and George stayed for two months. In other words, it wasn't continuity. 
So we have these types of stories that that litter the the uh, the official narrative. So now I think you want to go back to Paul being replaced. I don't I don't want to uh, to get you off track here. Well, no, I I, I want to be able because this this covers a couple of things right here. It's such a big a big one. The the Paul replacing. Yeah. You said that your your pathway to looking into this story and cobbling it together and presenting it to your your audience over the years, uh, it, it all started with the book about Billy Shears. And I, and I always wondered about the, you know, I still wouldn't be able to tell you basically, I, I would love for you to get into that. Billy Shears, I, I know the name just from Sgt. Pepper's, the opening of the album, they're introducing it, and I, I didn't know if it was a, uh, a fake character or whatever the hell it was, they were just very so experimental and kind of woo-woo back then. I just said, uh, you know, I'm just going to listen to the songs, and I don't really look too deeply into it. But then the more I, I have just dug past the, the surface level of all these theories about, you know, Paul's replacement, whether he was killed or whatever the hell is going on, I hear that who we right now think is Paul McCartney is actually this man named Billy Shears. So what what is the 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 nutshell version who is Billy Shears? Um uh you know is, is that the the ghostwriter or of, of of the book that you were you were reading um is Paul dead? Why did he have to die? Was it you when you say replace what happened? What precipitated it? I I, I mean these these are things that have been theories that have been laughed at for years, but I really don't know the details, so I just want to, let's get that out of the way. Okay, so the guy that's playing Paul McCartney today is not Paul McCartney. He's been playing the part, he has the permanent contract since 1966. And we'll pick September of 1966. There have been others who have filled in, paged in over time, um, but he has the primary role. Biological Paul McCartney the way the conspiracy goes, died in September of 1966. Um, many will say it was a car crash, but who really knows? The, the way I explain it is dead is dead, whether it's a car crash or some other way. I believe it's very likely, as the book talks about it, that biological Paul McCartney was a ritual sacrifice. Why? Because I mentioned earlier that the world is run by occultists. And these ritual sacrifices take place as it's defined in the book as death for success. So these sacrifices in the minds of the occultists now solidify the manifestation of their goals. So the book tells us that John Lennon and Paul McCartney entered into a Faustian bargain in October of 1963. And that's when things really took off. What the controllers did was they got their first album out, Please Please Me. It did very, very well. And then they dangled the carrot and said, you want more? Because if you want more, there's a lot more. But something you have to do. So... It's called going to the crossroads, making a deal with the devil, the Faustian bargain, going to the chief commander, as Bob Dylan referred to him in an interview that he did with Ed Bradley going back to the early 2000s. And uh, so Paul McCartney, in all likelihood, and I, and I do believe he's not with us anymore. Some people believe he's still alive. I don't believe he's still alive. 
Um, he was, um, in all probability, a ritual sacrifice. And for those that think that that's kind of strange, look at the 27 Club. Look at Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Well, when you Keith say Moon of the Who, when you say uh, uh, Mike, biological Paul McCartney, yeah, um, that that says to me that we're not talking about a clone. That there was a biological Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. now, now there's a double. Are we talking about a double or a clone? Because if there's a double, then there must be some verifiable differences between the two, between Paul and this Billy Shears yeah. character. So, and, and and if there are, what are they? Yeah, Billy's not a clone. Billy's not a double. B- Billy, Billy has had a lot of plastic surgery. Oh. Uh, a, a, yeah, a lot of use of um, latex and cosmetics. And the most telling sign that they are not the same person, and this was a discovery by a fellow researcher, a friend of mine, Sally Whitty. We covered this back in October of last year. Billy Shears, the guy who's playing Paul McCartney today, has an artificial right eye. He's blind in his right eye. He can only see with his left. Biological Paul McCartney, the real Paul McCartney, had two good eyes. And how do we know this? Well, the researcher that made the discovery, Sally, is also blind in one eye. It's in her left eye. Billy's blind in his right eye. And she had been examining... Uh, video footage, still images of Billy, and uh, she picked up on it. And when she made the discovery, she reached out to Tom Harriet, who is the author of the book, The Memoirs of Billy Shears. He's the encoder as well. He's Think of him as, think of, of, as Tom as the, the ghostwriter for Billy. And when she broached the topic with him, uh, I'm relaying this conversation because I had it with Sally. She said that, you know, Tom said, just handle it gently. And and so we did. And Billy, you know, I, I, I believe it's absolutely conclusive that he has an artificial right eye. In a recent interview that he did to promote the uh, the gallery of images that allegedly were taken by biological Paul back in the early days of the Beatles, um, I think it's called Eyes of the Storm, Billy is talking to a CBS interviewer, and the CBS interviewer says to him, as they're looking at a particular photo, you really have to have an eye for that type of thing. And Billy said, yes. And he points to his left eye. He says, it's my left one. So Billy was doing a hat tip to the fact that Sally had made this discovery. It's called Masterfully Speaking. I have it right here. It's only 48 seconds. Let me play it. And then, I'll, and then I have a, an, an obvious question for you. But he, here it is. This is uh, Paul McCartney, Billy Shears, um, uh, confirming that, or at least uh, allegedly confirming that he is blind in the right eye. This picture yeah. was when we were arriving at, uh, I think it was the Doville Hotel yeah. in Miami. I think your quote in the book was, I can almost hear her scream. Yeah, you can't. The cop's got to restrain her, you know. I also love the cop in the foreground who just sort of looks yeah. puzzled by everything. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I like the architecture. So do I. That I hotel. But, you know, as we were saying before, that was had to be taken really quickly. Yeah. She had to snap that. Yeah. But you have to have an eye to take that. 
It's my left one. <laughs> now, okay, so it's my left one. Now, if you're if you're reading into this, if you're studying this the way that you do, Mike, that is a holy shit moment. That's a confirmation. I, I no doubt about it. But if you, but if I'm going to play devil's advocate again, if you're Paul McCartney and you know about the things that have been said about you since 1965, if you, if, if it all is just a conspiracy theory, baseless, then is is it not possible that he's just throwing a bone to all the people who have been saying that he's not biological paul he has a he's blind in one eye this and that it, it, could he just be throwing a ball and teasing you all or is it confirmation well that you know th- that's what a lot of people would say that's what a lot of the the beetle fans will say oh he's just he's just joking around you know he's just poking fun at you crazy you know tinfoil hat wearers but let me explain this to you know to the audience we have been knee deep in this research for years i've been at it for seven years and what Billy just did there is something known in the, the circles of Freemasonry as masterfully speaking. Masterfully speaking is a technique that Masons use to reveal the truth by doing it in an encoded way. And that's what he did. And in fact, I have a playlist on my um, Paul is Dead channel that uh, has a number of clips where he masterfully speaks. And this is not the first time he's done this. He's done this many times where he's he's dropped clues. Billy has been dropping clues since day one. Since day one. Um, and he's since 1967 with the release of Pepper. Uh, Paul is dead clues go back, you know, before Sergeant Pepper. In fact, that that help album that everybody's looking at, I think if you're looking at my background, those are Thelema ritual signs. Okay, so that's all that's all occultism in your face. People are told that that, you know, the Beatles are performing semaphore poses to spell out help. That's not what it is at all. It's, it's, they're not spelling out help. So the thing is, um, Frank, um, aside, Billy, Billy is telling us there that, he's, that he doesn't have sight in, uh, in his right eye. It's also the, the footnotes in the book have been updated to confirm that he is indeed blind in his right eye. And some people will say, Oh, the book is historical fiction, and so it's not truthful. It's a book of lies. I'm sorry. But there is so much information in that book that the the only person that could know all this is somebody that was there, somebody who is either deeply within the inner circle or the person himself that was playing the role. Also, uh, in the book, there are many, many lyrics from Beatles songs, um, B, uh, Billy's likeness is is used in the book. These are all things. If the book uh, were a book of lies, that McCartney's organization would have written a cease and desist letter at the very least and told Tom, Tom U. Harriet, the author and coder of the book, to knock it off immediately. None of that has ever happened. Uh, you know, if you go back to the uh, the David Letterman interview back in two thousand and nine. That interview where he talks about, Letterman's talking about the double, and Billy says, yeah, well, you know, that's me. I'm, I'm him. What a lot of people don't realize is Billy did that interview after the Italian forensic team, a guy and a gal um, believe, out of Italy, who were set off to actually debunk the Paul is Dead conspiracy 
found through forensics that they could not, that there were two different people. And so that was going to be published um, in Wired magazine in Italy. And I think it was, I think it was published. I went to the Wayback Machine. I was able to find it. But it was downplayed considerably. It was right after that that Billy started doing the talk show circuit, especially on Letterman, to start making the jokes about it uh, in order to keep it under wraps. But I can tell you right now that he's at an age now. He's not 80 years old like Paul McCartney would be. McCartney was, you know, uh, uh, or 81. Billy's 86. He'll be 86 this year. I believe his, his birthday's in September. And he's his runway, you know, he's got, it's, it's short. And so I believe through that book and the research that we have done, myself and my, my colleagues outside of the book, that uh, he's looking to, to get some semblance of himself recognized. Because the entire world thinks that this guy named Paul McCartney, who passed away back in 1966, is responsible for the entire body of work that he has put out. Hmm. But he's not Paul McCartney. Yeah, if you were a stand, if you were a stand-in for all those years, I think you would want something, some kind of recognition, some validation uh, at the end there. You know, uh, like I said before, Mike, th- we're we're gonna have to do another show to, uh, you know, at, like a volume two of all this stuff. Because it's just so big. Because of yeah. course that we still haven't even touched John Lennon. I mean, you you think about uh, you think about uh, paying the prices of deals that were made back in the early 60s or the late 50s and you say well wh- well what was uh what was John's price he, he stayed around for a long time there was the death his death uh, um at the Dakota there was recent evidence that came out that that indicates that there was more than one shooter there that night a very interesting stuff L- listen to this one thing i know that we only have 7 minutes left but here is a an email about John just shifting there for a little bit yeah um an email I got from a, um, a viewer, I guess uh, both of ours. His name is Rich. And he says, I recently rediscovered uh, your work, your work, Mike, and happy that you're having him on. He's thorough and dedicated researcher. I have a few tidbits you might pass on to him. A, I worked with Yoko's longtime contractor, Jerry, in the 90s, and he was there, at, but he was there at the time of the assassination, and he was a confidant of Yoko's. Uh, we were redoing the kitchen in Dakota apartment. I pulled the radiator cover out to service it when I found a roach clip. Uh, the contractor said that it was John and Eric Clapton's as they smoked pot there while looking out the window. I still have that clip. Sean was there in his late teens. I never saw him. Yoko purchased a small Dakota apartment for him, which we all we had, which he had painted all black. Walls, ceilings, all ornate with uh, or, ornate walnut trim. The building board evicted him for partying too much, and Yoko had it restored. I was also uh, I was also told that she purchased many other apartments in the building and stored her extensive fur collection in one of them. Uh, let me see here. Uh, then he talks about this guy Jerry. Jerry would concur with everything in this interview uh, from Sage of Quay's site and more. And he linked me to one of your other sites there. He says, I concluded long ago that Yoko is a MK Ultra honeypot sent to control Lennon. Anyway, best of luck and look forward to the interview. So as far as Lennon's end of things here, do you think that that is, you wonder, man, it could have been anybody but Yoko. How, how, how does somebody like Yoko Ono really, I, I, I often thought that it had to be authentic love because what the hell did she bring to the table? And... Um, but do, do you think that that was how he was handled for so many years? 
Yoko was his handler. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, in memoirs, um, Billy, through uh, Tom U. Harriet, says that Yoko was his handler. Billy also says that, uh, to a certain degree, he also was a handler of John's. Um, you know, Yoko comes from a very wealthy family. You know, and and uh, so uh, she she's also I would consider her an occultist. I mean, in the in the Playboy interview in 1980, she talks about uh, collecting Egyptian artifacts because they have magical powers. Um, you know, um, I mean, the, the story goes that you know when John was uh, with with May Pang, he got summoned back to to New York by Yoko. And uh, based upon some articles I read, some research that I did, that um, John claims he had to go back for hypnosis sessions. <laughs> hmm. Wow. So, um, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times women are handlers. A lot of people don't, don't really realize this. You know, just to digress just a, a second here, Frank, George Bush Jr., I always thought his wife was his handler. Because I would watch her when she was with him during interviews, and she would look over at him, and then she would also touch, touch him at certain points, almost like "keep going, you're doing okay," or you know, to kind of guide him through it. So um, there's a misconception, I guess. The way I should word this is that handlers are always men, and that's not true. No, yeah, that 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 definitely comes through, and I can see how they could be very, very useful, and and. Uh... And, and very good at their job, especially if they're paired as couples with women, um, uh, you know, just as spouses or anything else like that. I can see it. Um, and, yeah. And as far as, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, here. no, no. As, as, far, as far as Yoko and John having true love, you should read um, um, the book by their assistant. Was it John Seaman? Hope I got his name right. Um he he says that you know there was a lot of there was a lot of there were a lot of problems in their marriage a lot. Well, you know, I I've always been very confused by it, and I always see, you know, I, I, being in bands my whole life, you get to know certain types of boyfriend girlfriend prototypes. And, uh, you know, the hangers on the ones that, you know, I mean, especially, you know, rock. If you're ever in a rock band as a young guy or girl or whatever, you know, everybody's girlfriend or boyfriend, the aspiring uh, photographer is always coming with the band, take pictures of everybody and, and then weasel their way into everything to give advice about what you should be doing. And and, uh, you know, so so I always look at Yoko and I just think about all of the ex-girlfriends that all of the band members have ever had had in my life used to have and I was just like oh would you just get out of the room and there she is sitting on every djembe drum in that right hovering over John and like a shadow and I'm like there's something going on here it can't be authentic there has to be something mind control related here um but I meant, we, by the way I meant Fred Seaman <laughs> Fred Seaman if Fred's watching I apologize Fred well you know Fred Seaman who was their assistant and you know Fred wrote a book uh, about their relationship and he did interviews going back in the day and uh he you know he his his version of their relationship is very very different than what was put out to the public so then i guess it wouldn't be very far from why paul in your in your um uh from your standpoint why paul was replaced to ask why lenin had to be 
removed in 1980. Because I often think if this is we, we've heard about Mark David Chapman for years, we've heard about the uh, we, we've heard about uh, Catcher in the Rye and all of the Manchurian Candidate kind of vibes that are going on here that are very related to even you know RFK's assassination, just things that start becoming fact patterns that you know to become a little bit more familiar you, you know that this is not just a crazed fan um I, I always think lenin was a yeah he was a free thinker but definitely a leftist uh if he lived on i don't see why he wouldn't have just become another compliant music industry veteran just like everybody else so was it just national shock trauma value after all of those years of building the Beatles up and all that stuff and then ripping away one of uh, so many children of the 60s idol uh, what was what do you think the real uh, meaning of that assassination was there's, there's a couple of angles with this thing um, one is that you know John was dropping a lot of clues about the uh, about the what really went on with the Beatles, what they were really all about. I mean, in an interview he did in the early 1970s at Rolling Stone magazine, he called the Beatles a myth, McCartney a myth, Dylan a myth. Uh, he talked extensively about, you know, once once Brian Epstein put suits on them, the music was over. You know, basically, he had more fun going back to when they were just a rough and tumble band and, um, and you know, and just playing rock and roll music, basically cover songs. So, you know, Lennon was Lennon was letting a lot of things out of the bag, but you had to read between the lines. Um, the other thing is that there's a book uh, titled uh, Lennon Prophecy, and the author is Joseph Nizgoda. And this is for those out there that you know are look into the occult aspects of this. He puts a very good case forward that Lennon uh, entered into a Faustian bargain in December of 1960, and that a lot of these bargains uh, have a shelf life of 20 years. And if that's the case, December 1960 takes us to uh, uh, December of 1980, of course, when, when he was shot. Yeah. So another another uh, uh, theory, or I, I should say not even a theory, but speculation is that John Lennon was t- talking about writing a tell-all book, I guess similar to what uh, they claim Mal Evans was doing. And then, of course, Mal Evans was, was killed by a police officer. Um, you know, was that coincidence? I don't know. So there's a couple of things around Lennon as to possibilities as to why he was taken out. But Mark David Chapman was a patsy. And, uh, you know, people have looked into the Lennon murder, say that uh, Jose Perdomo was the doorman um, at the uh, at the Dakota that night. Jose Perdomo, for those who don't know, was uh, an assassin with the United States Assassination Squad uh, called uh, Operation 40. Uh, and the, the work you were ta- the work you were talking about before, I, I think it's David Whelan's work. David Whelan out of um, out of the UK, who has really pretty much opened up the Lennon uh, assassination and, and said that it wasn't Chapman who shot him. There was another gun, and the shots to John Lennon were very precise. In other words, they were very uh, they were kill shots, very precision. And the way the way the bullets entered the, into John's body to make sure that he didn't live, mm-hmm. and there's mixed stories about whether John just died right then and there on the sidewalk, or he was able to make himself make his way inside the building a little bit, and that's where he collapsed. But uh, 
you know, there's a lot going on with the Beatles, Frank. You know, that, that's the thing. The, the bottom line, folks, is this. The music industry is completely controlled. Cradle to grave. And for any band, any artist to achieve what the Beatles achieved, there is a machine behind them. It isn't organic. It, there's no way they flew under the radar. And then, you know, the, the controller said, oh, hold on a second. Who are these guys? Let's see if we can commandeer them and use them to our benefit. No, 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 no. They were psycholo psychological operation from day one. You know, so we have to put our reality hats on, and, and especially in this day and age where we can see how these PSYOPs work. We go back to the event of March of 2020, which is, still has the after effects today. Mm -hmm. What was that? That was a worldwide psychological operation. It was very well coordinated. You know, um, So they've been, they have been doing this type of thing for a very long time. A very long time. The Beatles, same thing. I consider the Beatles to be a massive psychological operation because it plays into all of their occult philosophy as to how they're going to transition from one age to another age, from the old age to the new age. I call the Beatles the Pied Pipers of the Eon of Horus because that's exactly what they were, the Pied Pipers of the, of the Eon of Horus. They led, they're leading everybody from point A to point B. Well, the door, the door definitely swung open right around the time that they arrived, and um, yep. and yeah, the the Cinderella story that we all grew up with is it's just been it's very easily repeatable, and and it's that's why I was just so tempted to bring you on and talk about this, and I think that we still have a little bit more left on this subject before we get into other things that you cover, because I know that your uh, your repertoire of uh, of work and interest is is uh, is vast, and and it goes be well beyond this. So I thank you again for all the time that you spent with us introducing us to the subject matter. I'm going to get a deluge of email. Uh, some of it will be interested. Some will probably be a little bit upset. Some will be um, just, you know, uh, I don't know. Who knows? Follow. I'm looking for follow-up questions, especially if they're hard questions. And I hope that they come in because when we bring you back on, I want to be able to uh, toss you some of the hardest questions and rebuttals that you've ever heard, Mike Williams. And I hope that you join us again over here on Quite Frankly. Uh, no problem, Frank. And let me just let everybody know, there's nothing... I haven't been confronted with yet. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, it's, somebody out there is going to try to find it. Anyway, oh, I know they will, but trust me, I've seen everything. I'm, I can't wait. It, this is really some compelling talk, and I'm glad that you spent the hour with me. The, your email, I mean, your, uh, your URL to your website, it's in the description of this episode. I hope a lot of people go check your work out. Seems like we, we already have a decent amount of crossover between our audiences, and you enjoy the rest of your night, Mike. It's been great to meet you. Thank you, Frank. All right. Take care, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, well, take care of Mike. Take care of Mike Williams, a sage of Quay. He's doing his thing. All right. 826. You know who I know is going to be really enthralled by this? Uh, Jerry Coogan. I know Jerry Coogan over there in Scotland is a very, very big Beatles fan. And, you know, so am I. So am I. When Mike comes on again to field all of your questions, um then I, I really think that that's what I'm going to ask him. The, the bigger question is, you know, are, you a, are you still a fan? I mean, we, we learn about this stuff all the time. Learn about stuff all of the time. You go throughout life. If you're a musician like I am or Mike is, what are your personal thoughts about the music? If you're just an avid music listener, uh, a music historian, a, a movie buff, 
so many other things these days. We learn about possible darker sides of an industry, darker sides of people. We were just talking about, uh, we were just talking about, um, you know, uh, the Led Zeppelin the other night, uh, the Laurel Canyon bands, all the movie stars we grew up with. These songs, these movies, they're still great. Uh, many of them are, at least. Are you able to enjoy them objectively at all after all of your years of research? That's the uh, that's the real question. So um, thank you, Stostube. I have a couple of super chats here. Stostube, thank you so much. Sent a little something in. Uh, I have uh, some gold pills. Robert Sarn says, everyone, please subscribe to Brother Zoe. Zoe So Dude on YouTube. Thank you, Sean Joe, Chai Possum, Porpoiseful. Alan Wrench says, great guest. Thank you, Victoria. And who else we have? Swickley says, manipulation of sound, manipulation of vibration, frequency, manipulation of mind, body, emotion, equals manipulation of soul. Thank you, C. Blanche again. Dog Nuts 10. So I am going to be looking into our inbox on ProtonMail and Gmail. Quite frankly, podcast at Gmail or ProtonMail.com. I'll be looking into it, and I'll be expecting everybody to be calling in and, and uh, saying what they, they thought and what they want to hear discussed next time that Mike Williams is on before we, you know, I don't know. if it'll, Maybe it'll be at least a second volume of conversations about the Beatles, and then we can move on to other things. All right. With that said, it's all over for tonight. I'm going to wrap this one up. You are going to have some earlier, earlier entertainment, after-hours entertainment. It's going to begin on QuiteFrankly.tv, powered by Foxhole, just in a second. And I am going to kick off Session 2 of Book Club for the Devil in the White City with all of you monthly subscribers. We will see you in just a couple of seconds. Just a couple of seconds if you are in that and ready to go. All right. Thank you guys and gals so much. We will be back tomorrow. That's not what I meant to do. Where is it? There we go. Good night. And always remember, that's... Quite frankly, is film before a live studio audience. And now our super chatters. And thank you to all my gold pillars tonight. And to Stostube on quitefranklysuperchat.com. Tomorrow is another day. It's going to be a great one. And we have a full two hours together. So I will see you then. And for all of you getting ready for book club, continue to get ready. I'll, I'll be there in a few minutes.